This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Oh, it's Monday, OG. You know what that means. It's time for partying because it's Monday. Donuts. Because I like partying on Mondays. Oh, man. Everybody happy. After partying all weekend. You know, you're able to party all weekend, party all weekend. You like that stutter? It's because of the fact that the men and women in our U.S. Armed Forces kept us all safe all weekend. And for that reason, I'd like to give a big shout out to all of them on behalf of our friends over at Navy Federal Credit Union and the men and women here in the basement. Why don't we all party on in Monday, stacking some Benjamins. Ready to do that? Let's bring the lumber. Look. This is hot, Ray. Symmetrical book stacking. Just like the Philadelphia Mass Turbulence of 1947. You're right. No human being would stack books like this. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Duggan. Not to be cryptic, but what do you really know about how crypto started? I heard it was a mask man in Japan. But you know, if they're masked, I suppose it could be a woman under there. Heck, it's probably even Joe's mom. I mean, she wants to spend money, totally distrustful of authority, likely to run up a high electric bill for that heated foot bath thing she's got. But if you think the crypto world is crazy now, wait till we dive into stories from the real Wild West of crypto with the author of Tales of a Bitcoin Miner, Ethan Liu. Plus, October is ugly for the stock market. Or is it? We'll ask Robert Gilliland from Consensure Wealth in Houston to share strategies. Then, we'll find out what TikTok has to say about crypto and Uranus. The planet, Joe. The planet. And in my trivia, we'll dig into the pie graph of the first crypto purchase in history. And now, two guys, one of which looks like he's from the crypt, but waited too long to get into crypto. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. He's looking right at you, man. Looking right at you. Mm-hmm. Not me. Yeah, except I wasn't too late. I was... I was early. I got my Shibubu. You're in on the I got beginning. My Shibubu coin. <laughs> I have 58 million Shibubus, or whatever it's called. I got the Shibaba, which apparently wasn't worth what? anything. Hey, everybody, welcome to Bad Crypto Purchases for the Win podcast. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table from me, celebrating another glorious Monday, it's Mr. OG. What's up? I still got uh, Camp Five voice going. I was at uh, this camp about a week ago, and I still have not gotten over it. On Wednesday show, we're going to play actually some of the stories 
that uh, Doc G and I heard at the camp. By the way, speaking of Doc G, he's also here, as you know, OG. He's going to be the one doing the interview with Ethan Liu. And if you've never heard a Doc G interview, you are in for a treat because this guy knows how to dive deep on his show, Earn and Invest, and he's doing the same, talking about the history of Bitcoin. All I remember about the early days of Bitcoin and uh, shame on me. I remember my brother-in-law, you know, being one of those people that talked about it like it was CrossFit. And I was like, yeah, dude, dude just leave, please leave me alone. Just leave me alone. And I remember over the holidays watching one of those early bowl games. You know how they have like the garbage dumpster.com bowl? Yes. Whatever those early bowls are. One was like some early uh, mining company or, or wallet company. And I remember just completely trashing it when that happened and what a moron I was. All you had to do was just put a thousand bucks in it way back when. Had I and known. Just, and the phone number now would go, do, 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 <laughs> we're sorry. The number you've called is no longer in service. Yes. No podcast today because <laughs> you can't podcast from a private island. Because I'm a gazillionaire <laughs> and mama said I ain't got to worry about money no more. But we did report on all of the nefarious activity going on a lot because it was the Wild West. But Ethan Liu here with Doc G. Man, we got our TikTok minute. We've got a great headline with Robert Gilliland from Consenture Wealth. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, time for us to roll into some headlines. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from Yahoo Finance, and it is written by... Don Alcott. And Don writes, why you shouldn't worry about an October stock market crash. I know every year, OG, October looked on kind of, uh, everybody gets a little worried because the October madness comes about and we've successfully made it now through halfway through the month without, well, as of the time we record this, without some bad stuff happening. Don writes, we've been hearing the whispering for weeks, prospective government shutdown, ongoing Debt ceiling debate combined with U.S. Treasury bond yields continuing to rise. Seems like the makings of an almost perfect storm for a stock market crash later this month. Plus, the market always crashes in October. Or does it? Well, it's interesting. I had a discussion on my dead shortwave radio with our friend Robert Gilliland from Concentric Wealth in Houston. And here's his take on what most of us think about October. You know what's kind of interesting is that October really is not as bad as what it sounds like. The reason why we think of October is so bad is because that's where the market crashed in 1929, 1987. We all get that. The reality is, is that since 1950, the, the market itself, October has actually been the fourth best month of the really? year. Really? That's in the last 10 to 20 years. Yeah. But when you don't look since 1950, it's the fourth best, seventh best. It's actually an average month and actually ends up with an average return of about uh, 0.62%. 
0.62% on average for October for the market OG. So while maybe there's some volatility, fourth best month overall. Got it. So stay invested. Yeah. It just seems to me that we get worried a lot about all these different uh, things that happen. I mean, a lot of us weren't around or investors in 87 or uh, 1929, but we certainly have heard the stories over and over, right? About investors that were and about how dangerous those times were. And the fact that they happened in October, as did other market crashes, that stays in your head though. Yeah, Hard to get it out of your brain. It's no different than, uh, it's all of these things saying, well, usually in May, the market goes down or in December, the market goes up because of this. There's a lot of history there. And so because of the history, you have the opportunity to use that as a guide. And you can trick yourself into going, well, if it averages up 0.6%, therefore that must mean dot, 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 dot. Or people will say, it averages up 0.6, but the last five Octobers, it's been up 1.6. That must mean that eventually we've got to have a minus 0.2. It's going to happen this month or whatever. History is a guide as it relates to big picture things like stocks work in the long run and there's probably a recession every five to six years. And, you know, the inter-year highs and lows of the market are going to be plus and minus 15%. Like you're going to get a minus 15 every year. That sort of stuff helps kind of shape our mind as it relates to volatility. But using it as a as a market timing device, I think is a big miss because Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. I love the phrase that has stuck with me for a really long time. The market figures out a way to disappoint the greatest number of people. And when everybody is looking left, for whatever reason, the stock market goes, oh, okay, watch this. Well, he and I talked, and I won't play this clip, but he and I talked about September as well. And September is easily the worst month ever. But I also have to think that if you think about that and you're somebody still in the accumulation phase, you're still trying to get to whatever it is the goal is. That's Save all your contributions for September 30th. <laughs> well, I was Perfect. just thinking that should be a great thing. Like when, we, when you're younger, you want volatility. I mean, over the short run, it builds your ego. But hey, over the, for the market to go up, but over the long run, th that thing goes down in the early days. You should be high-fiving yourself that you've got another opportunity to go put some more money in. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago about this young investor, and he said, hey, you know, the market's at an all-time high. So shouldn't we just wait until it crashes before I get invested? And I'm just like, this could be the lowest price you ever see in your life. It feels high because it's never been there before. But the stock market's always at an all-time high. Gosh, I wish I had this. You had it. I thought you quoted it the you know a couple shows ago. It's something like you know, out of the 280 trading days, 180 of them are all-time highs or something yeah, like it was that. A, it was a big number. Yeah. You know, the stock market's always at an all-time high. I got this interesting stat the other day that I thought was pretty interesting. 30 years ago was October of 91. By the way, if you remember when Marty McFly went back in time, he went from 1985 to 1955. That would be just like us going to 1991, by the way. Easy with that. <laughs> don't, don't say that. Which is bleeping crazy. Yeah. So a lot of, lot of different stuff going on in 91, right? So quiz question, what was the S&P at October 91? No idea. 385, <laughs> plus or minus. And today, call it 4,500, right? So what did you have to do over these past 30 years to get an 11x return on your money? Stay invested. Absolutely nothing. You had to get through long-term capital management, 
Russian debt crisis, Y2K, all recession those, to 2007. All those October stock drops that Robert's talking about. All the October stock drops. You know, the, it's, I mean, think about October 91. That was just three years after 87 or four years after 87. Right. Talk about recency bias. Like, I'm out. It's October. You know, <laughs> all you had to do was just sit there and your money went up 11 times in 30 years. And if you're 35 today or you're 40 or you're 50, you know, what do you got to do for the next 30 years? Well, and we know that part of it, we know the right thing to do is to stay in. And we also know the right thing to do historically when it comes to markets is to go with an all stock portfolio. But the problem is not, of course, that I asked Robert, I said, hey, if if you're really worried about October here or worried about your portfolio, what should you do? Listen to his answer. If you're worried about the volatility and where your portfolio is, that means you're probably taking way too much risk as it is. So what you have to do is you have to pick your price. The thing that we tell clients, especially if they're pre-retirees or recently or, or retired, is make sure you have enough cash to maintain your living expenses. When you have enough money to cash flow to meet your living expenses, then you don't have to worry about the day-to-day -day management, day-to-day -day movements of the market. and You can pay attention to the right types of investments. But if the volatility is keeping you up, you need to make some adjustments and changes. And you need to be smart about it. This month may not be the time, but you need to make sure that your allocations are right. It's interesting when he talks about making it through that emergency fund comes in and yet so many people like, I don't need the emergency fund, OG. I don't need the emergency fund. And it's not about optimization. And yeah, you're getting a low rate of return, but the fact that you can sleep at night because you don't got to worry, I, I love what Robert's saying there. Well, there's two sides to this. If you're 35, if you're 45, if you're 55 and still 10 years from retirement, you should never look at what the stock market does on a daily basis or a monthly basis. What's the point? If you're 35 years old, do you honestly think that in 30 years from now, the stock market is going to be lower than it is right now? Because if that's your honest feeling, then you have no business owning stocks at all or anything other than probably guns and, you yeah. know, beet yeah. juice or something. Yeah. Find a place out in the woods. Which is fine. I mean, it's your prerogative, right? You can have whatever vision of the future that you want. Planners, people who think about the future positively tend to have better outcomes because, you know, that's the only experience we have. You know, the experience is that things get better as years go on. And, you know, you look at recent relevant stuff and you go like, oh, back in my day, it was way better back in, you know, and that's, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't. We have like, just think of like the technological innovations. I'm redoing a house right now. There was no Instagram. There wasn't. I mean, what would you do all day? There was a house that we're redoing. The HVAC guy goes, hey, this thing's like 10 years old. I'm like, yeah, what's that could do with anything? He's like, it's 10 years old. There's so much better stuff now technology-wise, trust me, the future is going to be better. So if you've got 30 years of your time horizon, who gives a crap what the stock market's doing? And yes, you need a cash reserve, but your cash reserve right now is to avoid getting into debt and avoid if you're out of work for a period of time and that sort of thing, like emergencies. I totally agree with you logically, but I'm not talking about logic. I'm talking about the chance is that you're still going to blow yourself up, even because logically, we've talked about this before. I quoted you at camp, you. at camp Did Fi. Did you quote it and TM me? Yes. Uh, I, I, no, also, thanks for the invite. I forgot the TM, but I quoted you about how the stock market could go down 14%. We're not in a bear market. Everybody can sit here and say, yeah, 14%, no big deal. But if you've got $2 million in the market and you're right on top of your retirement goal, you're not down 14%. You're down a quarter million dollars. Right. And, and, and what the cash reserve does has nothing to do with the numbers of the logic that you're applying, OG. To me, what it is, is 
you can ride it out. You can ride it out. You can rest at night. That's 100% right. I mean, that's why I'm saying there's two different sides of that. If you're accumulating, yeah. your emergency fund is for emergencies. If you're getting close to retirement, your cash reserve or emergency fund is so that you can stay fully invested so that you don't have to take money out when the market goes down. The problem isn't market volatility. The problem is you. Yes. The problem is having to sell stuff to put food on the table when the market's down. Right? Think about the person who retired in January of 2020. They don't have any cash reserve. They're just like, I'm going to live on 4% of my portfolio. I'm going to take this money out. And October 30th, you know, they've got to take out money to put food on the table for April. They've got to pay the electric bill. They've got, you know, the car payment or whatever it is. Because of the fact that the distribution has to happen on a frequent basis, you need that flexibility so that you've got a choice. So yeah, you you look at the cash and say, well, it's inefficient to have money, you know, sitting in cash. But if you have two years of cash and 90% of literally 90, the other 90% is in the market, that cash allows that money to stay in the market. Then your portfolio continues to grow. And eventually you get so far ahead of your income needs that then you don't even care what the market volatility does. In your example, you said $2 million, you're living on 80,000 a year, right? Finger in the wind, 4% rule. Well, what if you had $80,000 expenses, but you had five and a half million? Do you care if the market goes down 20% or 30% or 40%? Of course. Well, I mean, yes, you care, but you don't care from an income standpoint. Yeah. If you're going to be financially independent, if you're going to retire and you're like, oh, I just got it. I hit 2 million, bam, I can go. You've got this period of time, this next double, you've got the next, if you can keep your shit together for like six or seven years so that two million can turn into three or four while you're just kind of living your life, you're you're golden. You're good. You can't you just have to not blow it up in the first decade. We gotta have this guy on the show soon, but a guy named Big Earn was the first speaker last weekend at uh, Camp Fi. Big Earn used a landing the plane analogy about exactly what you're saying. He said, if you need exactly two million and you save exactly two million, he said, my numbers show that you can make it on that 80,000 deal. He goes, but think about that plane ride as you're, as you're coming in. He's like, you know, the cockpit is half on fire, smoke all over the place. Like you're, you're barely going to make it. And is that a fun ride? Because once you get to those withdrawal years, as you know, that withdrawal is scary. You all of a sudden have a burn rate. And even though the math will tell you, yeah, you're going to be okay. That's like, you're coming in for the landing and you know, you've had one of those crosswind landings where the, it says (laughs) that you have a gallon of gas left, but you're like, do I really, how accurate is this? Is this? Yes. Yeah. He's like, so, so getting exactly to that point and going, yeah, I think I'm good. Isn't going to give you the type of ride that you probably want the rest of the way. Uh, to finish this up, I asked uh, Robert about people on the other side of this equation, people that that were thinking, hey, maybe this is an opportunity. Here's what he said for those people. Well, I mean, that goes back, evaluating where your allocations are. It always makes sense to have a strategy that when things are on sale, you want to buy that. That's a good time to buy them. Um, you're never going to hit it exactly at the bottom and you're never going to hit it exactly at the top uh, when you're going and selling. But if you have capital that has not been deployed. And by the way, there's over $4 trillion sitting in cash in this country. That's amazing to me. It's just so amazing to me. I forget exactly what the number is on cash, but it's north of $4 trillion. The entire high yield, high yield muni market is only 4.5. So there's a lot of money in cash. So if you have a lot of money in cash, it absolutely makes sense 
to pick your points. I prefer to do it in the form of kind of dollar cost averaging. That way you take all the emotion out of it, get your money in there, get it working and continue wash, rinse, repeat, keep it going. Nice, nice job. Thanks uh, to Robert for hanging out with us for a little bit. By the way, I talked to Robert for uh, 10 or 11 minutes. So if you want to hear that entire discussion, you can actually see Robert and I chatting about this on our YouTube channels. Head to YouTube, put in Stacking Benjamins, and you'll find Robert and I talking through the month of October and the full interview of everything that we discussed. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, we're able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now... Because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. October 18th is a huge day for crypto for three main reasons. Firstly, that's the day that the SEC could approve the first Bitcoin ETF, which could be a huge news catalyst for a price. Someone saw me filming. But that could be a huge catalyst for a price increase. Secondly, on the 18th, and this is big, both Mercury and Jupiter station direct, meaning that as they move through the Zodiac from our point of view on Earth, they will be moving forward rather than backward. They don't actually ever move backwards, but sometimes the orbits cause that. That's what a retrograde is. Anyway, Mercury represents things like data, information, travel, exchange. And Jupiter is more on a macro scale, representing things like philosophy, wisdom, ideology. And the fact that both of these station direct or symbolically move forward on the day that we could have a Bitcoin ETF is really big. Also, given the fact that two days after on the 20th, we have a full moon, sun opposite moon. So that full moon on the 20th will likely be a local bottom, even if we're just ranging. 18th, ETF probably gets passed. 20th, another symbolism of a local bottom. We go up from there. Bam. Things are going north today. Stop listening to this. Hit pause right now. We got uh, we got Jupiter doing something today, OG. Um, can you repeat the part of this stuff where you said all about the things? If Jupiter's doing the thing and we got stuff in retrograde today. It doesn't actually move. It just looks like it moves. Yes. It's not really moving. No. It's like that old Buddhist uh, thing. Like the, the wind isn't moving. Your mind is moving. She said one thing that made sense, which is over very short periods of time. When there's news, things move, but they don't stay there for long periods of time. They move based on news, but then they go back to whatever the fundamental is or where things were moving. So could there be a Bitcoin ETF today? Maybe. 
And if there is, could that move Bitcoin? Yes. Is OG though, is Jupiter going to move Bitcoin? Uh, it might. I mean, there's a chance. One of the scariest part about this. People actually believe some of this. This woman has 140,000 followers. 140,000 people follow this person. And this is the bigger point. There are three things in life. There are things we control, things we influence, and things we neither control nor influence. Pot one, pot two, pot three. Stephen Covey 101. You neither control nor influence Mercury's retrograde into Venus? Well, I do, but you don't. Oh, I see. I influence it. 140,000 people follow this person who is... uh, Talking about things you can't control or influence. Yeah. I still say go long Shibubu coin. <laughs> that's because you own it. That's called... Also true. That's a little front running from, from OG. Not, not, no. not true. Uh, hey, we've got some... We've got a fantastic interview coming up with Ethan Liu. Ethan was one of the early Bitcoin miners, knew many of the big players in the early days of crypto. Our friend Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast here, the award-winning Earn and Invest podcast. Not only did he win Best New Podcast a couple of years ago, he also was up for Podcast of the Year in our uh, industry awards, the Plutus Awards this year. Doc G interviewed Ethan. Can't wait for you to hear that, but... Somebody here standing next to me, OG, has some feelings about crypto himself. Doug? Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. You know, back in the beginning of crypto, I thought I was an early investor, but it turned out it was just some foil-wrapped milk chocolates in the shape of coins that they could have appreciated. But, uh, you know, they didn't last through the night. Heard of Hot Pockets? Well... It was pretty warm in my pocket that night, but I've made some other sweet investments. We don't all need crypto. Joe's mom's praying those beanie babies are coming back. Some people, you know, got into crypto early, of course, which is fine if you like retiring to tropical islands. Who needs that kind of stress? And with this porcelain skin of mine? No, I'm sticking to the basement. Thank you very much. But let's get you back to today's trivia. For 10,000 big ones, what was the first purchase made with Bitcoin. I'll be back to break your investor's heart with the answer. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. So you think it's too late to get into crypto? You know, there's one here called KenCoin. Looks pretty interesting. You could get in early on that. Probably not as valuable as Barbie coin, but you know, still interesting. 
Bitcoin used to be so cheap. I could afford at least one Bitcoin in today's dollars, right? Let's look this up. What's it trading for here? Why? No, come on. I mean, come on. This is a joke, right? 56,000. No. All right. So let me see here. If I sell my car and my house in the RV, I mean, you know, if I had one of those, uh, maybe I could throw in some of my Velvet Elvis paintings. That'll probably put me over the top. But let's get back to today's trivia question. What was the first Bitcoin transaction? For 10,000 Bitcoin, which I'll remind you is about $560 million in today's valuation of Bitcoin, what was the first purchase? Well, it wasn't Crinkles the Sharpay Beanie Baby, sadly. It wasn't delicious chocolate in the shape of legal tender. Totally should have been. It was two big round pizzas. For that money, I hope they got extra toppings. I'm so sad inside right now, but mostly hungry. I'm very hungry right now. Anyway, Ethan Liu joins Doc G to talk about those wild early days in Bitcoin. While I think about what could have been, had I invested way back then, you should listen to these guys because they actually know what they're talking about. Welcome down to the basement, author of Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West, our new friend, Ethan Liu. It's great to have you here. Tell me, are we still in the Crypto Wild West today? Thank you for having me. And absolutely, I think we are still in the Wild West. Uh, we are still in the very early stages, and it'll take a long time before we exit that phase. Did I even see that Bitcoin got up to 55000 recently? Yeah, uh, it was very brief. I don't think it stayed there for a while, but uh, yeah, bull market's on the way back up. So I want to jump into your book because it's fascinating. In the first chapter, you allude to the genesis of Bitcoin right around the time of the banking scandal and bailouts during the 2008 economic crisis. And I'm going to quote you here. You write, Bitcoin was spawned from an opposition to the financial status of the world, a frustration against the same bleakness that had surrounded me my whole life. It was perhaps natural that eventually it would pull me in. Tell me, how were you first introduced to Bitcoin and how did it pull you in? I guess basically to back up a little, I'm of that generation which uh, did not grow up with a lot of good financial prospects. And uh, we all hear and read so many different statistics of uh, millennials, you know, not as likely to own a house as previous generations. Uh, less likely to have a stable full-time job and even worse health than, than than previous generations. And crypto, it's Bitcoin, it's created as a direct result, I think, to the financial crisis that caused all of this for my generation. And in the first batch of transactions, the creator encoded a, a message that directly referenced that. Uh, it was about a, a second round of bailouts for the banks. And clearly, this is a guy who uh, does not like the status quo much. What Bitcoin seeks to do is to cut out all of those, uh, the middlemen, all of the, the banks and the establishment that they feel has been causing the, these issues. And so I think uh, for a millennial, it's somehow a very natural thing to get sucked into all of that. So you were coming of age, you were a university student, you were interning for a newspaper in St. John on Canada's East Coast in, I don't know, roughly around 2013, and you meet a guy named Anthony Iorio. Tell me who he is and how he affected your interest in cryptocurrency. 
Back then, he was just a simple Bitcoin investor. I, I was writing something about Bitcoin. I was talking to him, and I, I found that conversation very inspiring. And he actually made a price prediction that day. And you know, lots of people don't like making price predictions because when you do that, you end up on the wrong side of history. But he made it a very accurate price prediction, and it is after that that I bought into Bitcoin. And Anthony Diorio would later. Co-found Ethereum, and the price prediction, interestingly enough, was that Bitcoin what would hit a thousand dollars per coin, and we just referenced the fact that it's briefly was up to fifty five thousand dollars per coin a short eight years later or so, right? Yeah, uh, back then a thousand bucks looked like a lot for Bitcoin. You mentioned this idea. He made this prediction, and it was a little bit later when actually the prediction came true. By that time, you were working for the Toronto Star. Bitcoin hits a thousand dollars, and you—I quote from your book—and this really goes along with what you were saying before. You said, "In many ways, my generation considered itself damned." So, Bitcoin hits a thousand dollars. How did that affect you at the time? I definitely thought there was something to it, not purely in a speculative way, because uh, I, I did read up on it, and it does have properties that hold a certain value, and I did see that other people might see that value, and I. I don't think I envisioned that it would get to the price level that we know today, but I definitely did think that it, it was something that was going to go up. Is it fair to say that you started to drink the Kool Aid right around then? <laughs> yes,、uh, it was. It, it wasn't an immediate thing; it was a slow drinking of it throughout the years. But、uh, I definitely started around then. And at this point, looking back, we mentioned Anthony Diorio, but. Were there any real bona fide crypto experts back then in 2012, 2013? And if so, what were their credentials? Ah,、uh-huh. that's a very good question. I don't think so. Yeah, there were very few of such people because the the realm is so new, right? It, it only began at around 2013, and I'm、uh, sorry, 2009 and 2013. I think that was when the the Winklevoss people first started getting in. And Anthony Diorio, he founded this Bitcoin Alliance of Canada, this industry group. And by founding that, he became the Bitcoin expert to be quoted in my article. You know, as as I was reading your book, I started to question: like, is this a bona fide investment, or is it more of a cult or a religion? I mean, there's almost like a religious following, especially in those early days, to the way in which people were buying into this idea of cryptocurrency and the blockchain. Oh, I think it can be both. Bitcoin can represent many things, and to different people, it is different things. And I think what is unique about Bitcoin is that it has both of these things. You know, lots of industries they can spawn subcultures, and、uh, lots of subcultures can become industries. But every time that happens, the spawn is always lesser than、uh, what has spawned it. You know, lots of people like to play Dungeons and Dragons as、uh, as teens, but they they sideline it when they become adults because You can't be a professional dungeon master, but、uh, crypto and Bitcoin is one of the few things that not only does it have this ideology and subculture, it has money constantly streaming in to keep that passion burning, and so it becomes more than an industry and a subculture put together. I think I love that crypto as the D and D of the investing world. Let's talk more about that subculture, especially back then. It was really a meetup subculture. Like it seemed like a lot of the place where you were going and hobnobbing and learning about cryptocurrency were these kind of meetups that people were putting together throughout Canada. 
Yeah. And the internet really did wonders for something like this, because if you try to introduce Bitcoin like 20, 30 years ago, and clearly that the internet wasn't so developed back then, but it would be hard to gather all these people from all across the world. And I think they formed quite a small percentage at the time, like maybe out of a hundred, what one guy would be interested in something like this. And they're all spread out around the world. How would they get to know each other? And I think the internet, these meetups, they were really a, a big thing to helping crypto take off. Talk about some of the people you met at these meetups, some names that would eventually become prominent. And why do you think at that time they were so exuberant? Yeah. So at one of the meetups, or one of the very first that I went to, it was Anthony Diorio's meetup. I met a young man called Gerald Cotton. Uh, he called himself Jerry. He seemed like a very, uh, I want to say the word inspiring, but you know, in retrospect, that's uh, it's not a very good label because he ended up founding Quadriga CX and that utterly collapsed. And he was accused of doing all sorts of shady things with people's money. Like that's uh, the developments that came out after that. So um, yeah. Uh, sorry. What was your question again? That, I, I was why? asking, I was asking you about some of the people you met at those meetups, the characters you mentioned, Gerald Cotton, he may or may not have died in India. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. He, uh, I think in the beginning, I like to think that he died, but in the book, I also write that some weird guy from Russia tried to sell me information that he says is proof that he didn't die. I don't think the all that information about his shady dealings, they, they came to light. And people uh, like me, some people are still thinking that he was a nice guy. But afterward, all of this came out. And could he have died in India? Uh, I mean, could he have not died in India and ran away? It's, I think it's very possible, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to put a pin on that. Yeah, there was, there was a push to exhume his body to prove that he had actually died and not absconded with everyone's money. So at some point... Bitcoin rises higher and higher, and you get fairly obsessed with it, right? I mean, you, by that time, were working as a journalist. I think you were working for Reuters. And it became, kind of went from a passion to obsession. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I, I got deeper and deeper uh, down that rabbit hole and drank more and more of that Kool-Aid. And I started uh, more actively trading. You know, uh, my daily consumption of news, I would cut out some of the mainstream news and I would fill that gap with uh, crypto news and crypto developments. And at some point you left your job and started working in crypto only and you set up your own kind of mining operation. Is that right? Yeah. And that was when, you know, the the proverbial crossing of the threshold, that was when that happened. And uh, that was when I truly got really deep into this world. What do you think pushed you to finally cross that threshold? Well, uh, as I write in the book, it's quite a lot of factors. And, you know, our, our brains, we, we make decisions uh, but sometimes before we realize it. And there are studies that, that show this. When we actively weigh the pros and cons, you know, we mo- a lot of the times we're just justifying to ourselves a commitment already made. And the reason for that, it goes back to, I think, a lot of the events earlier in my life, uh, you know, growing up not with a lot of money and maturing into bleak economic circumstances and discovering Bitcoin back then. And also I'm a, sometimes I'm described as a bit of an eccentric guy. I, I like adventures. I have a tolerance for risk. I like doing unconventional hobbies. So I think all of that put together was what truly pushed me past that threshold. So I'm going to jump forward a little bit through the 2000 teens, you know, the price of Bitcoin went up and down. You saw your own wealth expand. 
at some point, did you start saying, okay, I could be set for life here if I just get this right? Yeah. Well, that thought did cross my mind, but I don't think I was ever that wealthy to be truly set for life. I think these days, you know, a million bucks isn't what it used to be. At the peak, if I were like 55 years old, I probably could have been set for life. But I'm a fairly young man and uh, still have lots of years left to live. Inflation is a thing. (laughs) It indeed is. Tell me what happened to some of those early adopters. So being part of that meetup culture, you know, you were around a lot of the people who got in early on crypto and created some of these early businesses. How did they fare through the 2000 teens? Well, I think one of them is definitely Anthony Diorio. And uh, I find this quite interesting because he was already quite wealthy when he got into it. He was doing lots of property stuff. He was an entrepreneur before it. And he co-founded Ethereum. And this is depicted in another book. There was a fallout within the Ethereum world. And he ultimately chose to leave crypto altogether. Back then, I remember I watched him speak at a conference. I met him there and he was basically abandoning crypto for philanthropy. And I think recently there was another announcement from him that he was, I think he was selling a lot of his crypto, if I'm not wrong. Was that a common story arc? Some of those early adopters, I know some got out for legal reasons, but even those who had been successful, it sounds like it was a wild ride. Was there a certain amount of burnout that you're seeing as the years go by? Yes and no. So that definitely is a certain amount of burnout. Crypto is a place where time moves faster. You're like one of those stormtroopers in Star Wars. You know, they <laughs> age at twice the rate of ordinary humans. But the normal markets, uh, I, I remember when, when I was at Reuters, if an oil company moves like 5%, I'll get a frantic call from my editor. Like, what happened? Why did this move 5%? But crypto, like that that can happen in like just one morning and that, that will be an unspectacular event. So, and especially for a fast developing field, you, you definitely go through a lot as an, as an early adopter. But I, I think even Anthony Diorio, you know, he he didn't sell off all, all of his crypto and he, he might come back one day and he probably still holds a lot of crypto. And I think that holds true for for lots of early adopters as well. We already talked a little bit about Jerry Cotton and some of the legal problems that he got into. You also chronicle the story of Jan Serrato throughout the book. Tell me about the legal issues that some of these early adopters faced. I see this dichotomy of one spectacular wealth building, but the other side was that you know a lot of people here were pushing the boundaries and facing legal consequences because of it. Yeah, I think this speaks to how uh, when we say the crypto sphere is the Wild West, I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. The Wild West, uh, at times, it can be awesome. Why do people seek out the West? You have uh, idealists plotting revolution. You have uh, the restless seeking adventure. And you also have people who are just simply seeking to, to bury their names and be born anew. Jan Serato, he exemplifies someone like that. He he had a bit of a complicated past. And Crypto is a world where anyone can be born anew. And that's why, you know, back in the day, why do people seek out the Western frontier? Why do they, you know, leave the old world for the new continent? It's because uh, there's a certain degree of equality in this new world that isn't, that isn't present in previous worlds. You're not bound by the same societal hierarchies. And back in the day, especially back in the day, like five years ago, the most established person in crypto only has five years more experience than someone just entering it. 
and it's full of opportunity. That is where you can, regardless of your past, you can try to be successful. But I think ultimately they would find that, you know, the world is harsh and unpredictable and not everyone finds what they seek here. Did you find what you were seeking when you got into cryptocurrency? Looking back 2021, uh, did you find what you were looking for? I don't think so because I don't even remember what I was seeking. You know, I think that there's a line <laughs> in this book I described, like I, I was just walking about uh, and all the streets look just indistinguishable. I just don't know where I am anymore. So let's look at this at a more global level. There are lots of us out here who are trying to be savvy investors. And part of being a savvy investor is being an early adopter. Looking at the story of cryptocurrency, can we learn anything about how you become an early adopter and get in when the getting's good, so to speak, the way some of the people did with crypto? How do we do that in the future? Are there any lessons to be learned here? I think a lot of it is simply down to luck. A lot of the, I guess maybe not a lot, but quite a few of the the crypto big shots people who are people who've made a lot of money in crypto, they they started off as drug dealers on the dark web. Sometimes you're just lucky, but luck is also manufactured, and there are studies done on luck. You know, you're you're not just simply lucky. Things don't just fall into people's laps. Studies show that lucky people are those they they simply are on the lookout for. For opportunities. Like if I remember correctly, the study was that they got participants to read a newspaper and they're supposed to read the whole thing and summarize it. But on the second page, there's this ad that says, if you see this, stop reading and you get a hundred bucks right now. And they did on two groups. One was people who considered who considered themselves lucky. And one was people who you know didn't necessarily consider themselves so. And the people considered themselves lucky they all saw that ad. And yeah, how do you catch these waves that perhaps, you know, be more open to opportunity? If you could give your younger self advice right at the beginning of the crypto wave, as you were watching yourself go through this, would you have told yourself to jump wholeheartedly in or to run as fast as you can the other way? Oh, I would have told myself to jump wholeheartedly in. I did make uh, quite a lot of money in crypto, and which is very good. But we, we all have these stories that, uh, you know, I could have made even more. I, I know this guy, early investor in Ethereum. He got in when it was a few cents and it eventually got to like, I think 10 bucks or something. And he sold everything and he made like 60,000 bucks. He was very happy. He thought it was a lot of money, but if he had held on to it all the way until now, it would have been like tens of millions. Now, we mentioned the fact that some of these bigger operators eventually had some legal issues. Did you ever worry yourself about getting into legal jeopardy, given the fact that cryptocurrency was so new and the laws surrounding it weren't clear? For a while, I did. And this is a very interesting thing because I went to North Korea for a crypto conference. And while I was there, I met this guy called Virgil Griffith, who, as we all know, he pleaded guilty and he's getting like six and a half years in prison. But Back when he got arrested, so he's arrested for allegedly teaching North Korea how to dodge sanctions through blockchain. And it was at the very conference we were at, uh, he was arrested for the for remarks he gave there. It was a big shock when he got arrested because when we were at the conference, I was thinking it was going to be a total non-news event. Nobody expected that. And I think the rational part of me knew that, number one, I didn't speak at the conference. And number two, I, was, I went there as a participant and Number three, he, the law he violated only only applied to Americans, but 
uh, when I first heard the news, I think the emotional part of me, it did think that, hey, will I ever get into trouble if I try to enter the US? And notably, you were one of only a very few number of participants who were non-Korean. Oh, well, all the foreign participants were non-Korean. So there were like eight people there. Right. So there were eight non-Korean people there. And so you were the only few foreigners there of the whole group. So the name of the book is Bitcoin Miner Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West. Ethan Liu, is this book available everywhere? When does it come out? October 19. It's available for pre-order now. And uh, yes, available everywhere, wherever you buy books. It was an excellent read. Thank you for coming down to the basement. It was an absolute pleasure. Hi, I'm Mitchell Walker. And when I'm not teaching people how to find hidden money, I'm out stacking Benjamins. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Halloween candy. Oh, my goodness. So you good. Know, I'd made a huge mistake the other week. I was doing an after school activity. The other participants were on their way out. It was the end of the activity. So there's like usually food and that sort of stuff for yeah. different participants. And there's like a big box, of like all these different boxes of candy, you know, like Snickers bars and Milky Ways and da, da, da. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I must gank me one of these. So I grabbed me a Milky Way and I kind of kept walking and I was super excited and I got to my car and it was a Snickers. So I had to eat a Snickers. I would have much rather had a Milky Way. I like Milky Way. You know what? It's three musketeers that does it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Those are pretty good too. Even though I remember talking to our friend, Len Penzo, who appears with us on Fridays, uh, Len had uh, put a uh, three musketeers in his desk and three years later opened it up and opened up the inside I told that story and it was like exactly the same oh goodness he got lucky because i put a three musketeers in my drawer when i was a kid i got one big three musketeers bar for halloween one year yeah and i left it in my drawer right and i took it out and it was green on the inside <laughs> <laughs> it was like that time that i had a i used to get uh when i would drive to my girlfriend's house you know i would stop and get gas and i would always get hostess cupcakes you know those like yeah, yeah. two in a pack sure yeah Love them. Oh, they're so good. Well, they were better before, but now they're yes. taste a little more processed. Adequate. But anyways, uh, do you think that's you know, them or us? By the way, totally them. Like I would peel off the chocolate icing, like in one like lick, basically, like yes. all that, and then just eat the cake. So I'm driving down this back road. It's dark. I'm on my way to my girlfriend's house, take a big bite of this chocolate cupcake, and I'm chewing it, and I'm like, it's kind of fuzzy. Like, what is that? Oh, no, no. <laughs> and so I flipped the light on. Oh. And it was Stop green. It. it was green oh. and fuzzy on the inside. <laughs> oh. Don't. I did not. I, uh, so I don't, eat, I don't eat Hostess cupcakes in the dark anymore. <laughs> Here's the deal, guys. Do your Haven Lifeline uh, questionnaire before you eat the Hostess cupcake. Yes, please. Hostess, if you want to sponsor the show. <laughs> Send us a lifetime supply for apologies. <laughs> yes, we'll make sure they're not green on the inside. That's why, which I'm sure is going to make them want to sponsor this. They made buying quality term life insurance actually simple so you can spend more time with your friends on Halloween. Their application is simple online. You get instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable. And of course, the big thing about insurance, you want to know it's there when you need it. And Haven Life is backed by the parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer. Let's uh, say hello to Jennifer on the Lifeline today. Say hi, Jennifer. Hi, Joe and OG. My name's Jennifer. Although I'm certainly much younger than Joe, I do have a granddaughter who's almost three. We've been contributing to a 529 plan for her since she was born. She was recently diagnosed with autism, 
and that makes her future even a little bit more uncertain than the typical kid. We're not sure what the best path is to take. If we can continue to contribute to the 529, can those funds be transferred to an ABLE account if higher education isn't the path for her? Should we stop contributing to the 529 and start contributing to an ABLE account instead? Or should we just make contributions to a regular brokerage account that can be used for her in the future? I'd really appreciate any insight you guys can offer. And if you happen to have any stacking Benjamin swag in a 3T, she'd look great in it. Thank you. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. Jennifer, we are sending swag to you and her because if we can start them early, OG, on their stacking Benjamin's journey. It's always better. Absolutely. So Jennifer, thanks for the question. And let's talk first about an ABLE account, because there are a lot of people out there that uh, may need this type of account. This is not the type of account that we talk a lot about on the show, OG, but man, this can help a lot of people. Yeah. So you think about a 529 as a college savings account. An ABLE account is like a 529, but for people that may not uh, need it for college, like have some disability or some sort of other ailment, if you will, that, that allows them to accumulate money in the same manner as a college savings account. So it's tax-free, it's tax-deferred, use it for the right purposes, it's that. The only thing that you have to be aware of is that the contribution limit is 14000 a year or whatever the maximum is this year, just like 529. And generally speaking, as long as the account balance is under hundred k, then it doesn't really affect Social Security benefits and that sort of thing. But once it gets to hundred k, there, there could be some pretty significant uh, issues. That's the only difference. 529, you could have, you know, a million dollars in it and it doesn't affect your, um, depending on who owns it, it won't affect your your financial aid package. But all of a sudden you've got a million dollars in an ABLE account, you know, there's going to be uh, some issues there on some other benefits, maybe. I guess you'd have to kind of weigh out whether or not the government benefits are better than you just having a boatload of, That's of your right. own money. Yeah. So what does she do if she started contributing to a 529, switch over to an ABLE account, and then can she uh, move the money? I would continue to use the 529. And, you know, obviously uh, a diagnosis of autism can be all over the board. It could be somewhat of a non-issue, you know, in terms of development and learning and that sort of thing. Or it could be a really big learning impairment. You know, there's a lot of ranges of that. So at three, I'm certainly not a doctor and nor did I stay at a Holiday Inn last night. But I think there's a lot to learn as your grandchild gets older, what they're going to be good at and what, you know, where they are going to excel and it would may you, not be in school. Well, with just then a non-qualified or not a regular brokerage account where she maybe pays a few taxes, but doesn't have any of the issues of what you can take it out for. Is that maybe the better option? I still like the 529 for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you can use it for any school purpose now, right? Including private school and that sort of stuff early. You can use it for college. You can transfer it to an ABLE account if you want, uh, up to, you know, $14,000 a year, $15,000 a year, uh, transfers from a 529. So you can still get it to enable account if you want, you know, if you kind of go down that path and go, well, this is pretty clear. We're not going to use this for any schooling whatsoever. Yeah. And the tax deferred nature and tax free nature of the growth potential, I think is way better. The other thing that it does is it selfishly keeps your fingers off of it. And I know, you're, you know, you're, you must be pretty disciplined with money to be able to accumulate money for your grandchild 
right? But if it's in a regular brokerage account, you don't want to put it, her name on it or or his name on it because you know that's going to affect other benefit issues down the line anyways. So it's always going to be in your name. And so you do run the risk of that money being accountable for something else, whether it's something as simple as like, oh crap, I didn't accumulate enough for my own retirement, so I'm going to take this, defeats the purpose. It's your money anyway. You can do what you want. Or something more sinister like a lawsuit or a divorcing spouse or something like that. So I think that if you can afford to do it, I, I would keep going down the 529 path. Just kind of keep your eye on directionally where, where your grandchild is headed in terms of in terms of education and what their interests are going to be because a 529 can be used for a lot of stuff. And ultimately, if you don't use it for school, you can move it to enable. If you don't use it for that, you can move it to another grandchild or another family member of a different kind, you know, different, you know, in the, in the family tree. So yeah, in a lot of ways, it can become kind of the family education trust. Yeah. So I'm a fan of keeping it in the 529, keep life simple and, you know, just keep your eye on it. Five or six years from now, you can start making some other decisions based on uh, what you're seeing as yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to evaluate what a three-year-old's going to be great yeah. at. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jennifer, one other thing to keep your eye on too, and this is by the way, for everybody, estate planning is always important. We always think that the end of our life is going to come at the end of the story. And yet it never does. It happens often in the middle of the story. And if it does turn out that she ends up needing more help later, while estate planning is super important for everybody, OG, maybe in the future. And once again, this is as, as her development continues looking at special needs trust. If it's clear that she's going to need help later on in life, special needs trust work can solve also a lot of potential issues ahead of time. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Jennifer. Great, great question. Congratulations on being a grandma, even though you're way, way, way younger than me. <laughs> uh, I, is, is that why I try to poke old guy jokes at Len Penzo all the time? Just yeah. the one dude who's older than me? Yeah. Uh, if you've got a question for us, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And we're very, very happy to help and honored that you'd ask us for help at stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. All right, that's going to do it for today. There are a ton of people to thank. What an action-packed episode this was. I'm sure you're all out to buy some crypto because of what's going on with Jupiter today. So we should probably get this show done. But uh, two more quick things. Number one is books have begun going out again. For those of you that have sent me uh, reviews, going out much slower than I'd hoped. I am way, 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 way behind. So if you sent me a note, I got it. My travel schedule has been uh, insane lately. And so hopefully uh, you get yours soon. I will keep having updates here on the show, though, about, uh, about where I stand. You'll get an email from me about which book you'd like. I'll give you a few choices, and, uh, and then I'll pop one in the mail. Finally, if you're somebody that needs to think bigger about your financial plan, about your life goals and your purpose, and you want a better team in your corner to help you with those goals, OG and his team are taking clients. So head to stegabedgements.com forward slash OG leads you to OG's team and their calendar. And you can then interface with his team to see if they may be a fit for better decision-making going forward. All right. That's going to do it for today. We're back on Wednesday, live from Camp Fi. What did you do last weekend? You're going to hear what I did last weekend. Hung out with 65 cool money nerds. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from our headline and TikTok Minute. Mooning the market will get you 140,000 followers, but it won't make you rich. I promise. I swear. 
I may or may not have actually tried that. Keep your predictions on Earth and get your advice from certified experts. Stay in the market in months like October and let Jupiter do whatever Jupiter does. Second, if you thought you knew the world of crypto, you do not know the world of crypto. Trust me, I was an insider. I was in the early days. It was delicious. But the big lesson, I'm 99% certain Joe's mom started crypto. I mean, I've done all the math, the research. Otherwise, I mean, where does she go in the night, Joe? Where? I'm asking you, where? She just disappears. Getting her mining fix and counting her sweet, sweet pizzas. That's what I'm saying. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To find out more about Ethan Liu, purchase Tales of a Bitcoin Miner wherever books are sold. And also, could I get a crypto time machine, please? And for more from Robert Gilliland and his firm, Consensure Wealth, head to, wait for it, ConsensureWealth.com. I know, it came out of nowhere for me. I never would have guessed that. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe, and it's all free. It's called The Stacker, and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, reminding you... Don't put off tomorrow anything. You can put off until the day after tomorrow. That's way better than tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. You hear a lot about TV shows and movies that I see, but this time OG's got one. This is a show on HBO called The Undoing. (laughs) 
I had this idea of the perfect life. Which I got from you and mom. That's really all I wanted. It is surprising how weak we all are. When we are convinced that we are not. This is what I know. I'm in a room with two detectives who are treating me like I'm a suspect. You have always seen things so clearly. How can you not see this now? Did you think that he was capable of committing such mayhem? You need to stay away from my wife. Your daughter is hiding something. Many law-abiding, high-functioning people have the capacity to snap. I think you can handle everything. This is bigger than you. Exactly how weak do you think I am? So just from the trailer, we got uh, Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant, uh, Donald Sutherland, and other people in this in this show. Looks like she's been accused of something really creepy. Said it was written and and, and uh, created by David E. Kelly, who uh-huh. who made one of my favorite shows back in the day, which was The Practice. I absolutely love David E. Kelly's show, The Practice. It turned into Boston Legal. Yeah, Boston Legal. And Boston Legal was a little funnier, a little more irreverent than the the mm-hmm. Practice was a little grittier. But uh, this looks like the kind of thing that would just captivate you. Have you seen that bit where they take what if Frozen, you know, and they flip the lines around and make it like a horror flick? Yeah. Do you want to build a snowman? This seems you know? like a horror flick. Yeah. So they take all these lines and they put them in this order and it, make it makes it seem like the way it is. So here's, a, here's the kind of intro to it. It's only six episodes. I'm on episode four. Uh, Mrs. OG is also keeping up with me and is enthralled by this, but basically it starts out, you know, happy couple. He's a doctor. She's a psychiatrist. They live in New York city. They're in the, they go to the, the, the bougie, uh, school, you know, their kid goes to, and then there's a new person who, who kind of shows up in their life, you know, a new, a new mom to the group. And then throughout the first episode, you start kind of seeing all these different characters and, there's Donald Sutherland, who's her dad. And and then all of a sudden, something bad happens at the very end of the episode. You know, kind of like we set it up for you. And then here's this bad thing. And now it, you have to start unraveling like what happened. And so all these different twists and turns of a series of events, you know, so she's interviewed by the police. She's trying to solve these problems. Her dad's like, this is bigger than you. Like is, you're it, not her be dad is Donald this. Sutherland. Yep. So kind of a cool dude. Looks like Hugh Grant is her lawyer. Hugh Grant's her husband. Is her husband? Oh, Hugh Grant's the doctor husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're married, and their their life is getting kind of tipsy turvy here. It's just perfect, you know, perfect New York City life, and all of a sudden something crazy happens, and trying to make sense of it. So it's definitely kind of a whodunit. It's definitely a you know, not quite a thriller. Like you've got like, oh my gosh, there's a guy in the corner with the knife that's going to get you. Yeah. And it's not a horror flick by any stretch, but it's, you know. No, but that music you can hear, it's just. It's very, very high drama. Yeah. Uh, not for the kids. 
it's it's got some some pretty heavy uh, adult themes and how many episodes in are you? Four I've watched oh. and there's six total. Yeah. So I can't wait to hear about it when you finish. Well, well I mean, what am I going to say? I can't tell you what happens. I kind of know. Like now, I've got a sense. Like the first. Yeah, but is there going to be a twist? There might be a twist. You're right. Like at the end of the first episode, my wife's like, oh yeah, you can totally see what's happening. And I'm like, really? Because I'm, I don't know. I'm just sitting here eating popcorn watching. I'm not trying to like put it together. And at the end of the second episode, she's like, oh yeah, totally predictable. And I'm like, really? I didn't get that. Like I was surprised when such and such a thing happened. I didn't know that da 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 was a thing, you know, whatever. And now I, now I'm starting to like go, well, it's not, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. I don't think it's that. But did she share with you what she thought was happening? No, but now I'm ahead of her, so like we're totally incommunicado on this. But I've got I I think I know what happened. Yeah, I think I got it. So I'll let you know if I was right. All right, time for us to roll into some headlines. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Keep those ponies rolling. I don't know what that is. What is that from? Ride the very next. The very next next phrase. I don't think it's ponies though. Keep, keep the, that cattle rolling. Keep the, oh boy. Keep the some, something has to keep rolling. Keep something rolling. That's all I know. Keep this podcast. It's, pod, not, it's definitely this not joints. Podcast rolling. No. <laughs> keep this podcast rolling. What's that joke? Whenever I roll a joint, it's my ankle. Ah, nice. Yes. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This military appreciation month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 